1: The Economist.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Auret Ogunbiyi.
1: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
2: Africa is home to the world's fastest growing population, but the number of homes is not growing as quickly as the number of people. From Senegal to Kenya, the continent is in the grip of a dire housing crisis.
1: And you might remember Parler. A few years ago, it stood to become the next big social media platform for America's far right. But it acquired a dark reputation and eventually collapsed. So what to make of the fact that now it's back? First up, though. preserve the tech unicorn in its natural environment. Most often found prancing on the slopes of Silicon Valley, eating its fill of venture capital, excreting rainbows. To find this majestic species, you just follow the trail of rising valuations. Not so long ago, you could find them everywhere.
3: Five years after starting the company in 2013, it was valued at a billion dollars, making her one of the world's youngest female tech unicorn founders at just 30.
0: Uh, valuations were really high. We've got a record number of unicorns. We didn't even used to talk about unicorns a couple of years ago.
2: You are founders of the long-lasting unicorn companies, the real ones that are built to last.
1: But in a story as old as time, the species is now threatened by a changing environment. Interest rates, inflation, uncertainty, all rising. Those rainbows are losing their sheen.
3: LinkedIn just laid off nearly 700 employees. Qualcomm is planning to cut more than 1,200 jobs. Google, Amazon, and Snap are among the companies continuing to downsize.
0: Mark Zuckerberg's year of efficiency back in focus this morning after another round of sweeping layoffs and job cuts.
1: In 2021, 344 unicorns, that is, companies worth more than a billion dollars, were born in America. Last year, only 45 of them. The tech unicorn has become a vulnerable creature.
4: The total funding for American startups fell by almost half from its peak in 2021, which was around 350 billion that year, to around 170 billion in 2023. Charlie Chitness is a business correspondent for The Economist. During that period, the number of new unicorns that have been minted has plummeted even further. It fell by almost 88%. And so what that means is investors in existing unicorns, which have been essentially stuck at the gate looking for an exit, are now wondering how they can recoup the returns from these investments. The age of unicorn is essentially over. And why
1: is that? Why has the, the unicorn, uh, is it becoming a, an endangered species?
4: So one reason is that interest rates have been rising. And with that, what has happened is the era of cheap money is essentially over. And so if you think back during the peak years, there was a flood of new type of investors that came into Silicon Valley. Prominent among these were investors that are so-called crossover investors. These are funds that participate in both public as well as private markets. Now, these crossover investors were a lot more adventurous in the type of investments that they made. And one old-school venture capitalist that I spoke to recalls that money was so plentiful that founders could essentially raise money on a Zoom call. In 2021, which was the peak of this bubble, crossover investors accounted for almost half of all startup funding. Today, they are probably less than a third. Now, what is more significant is a high proportion of their funding went into late-stage startups. Or, like we're talking about right now, unicorns, which typically have a very high cash burn. With the markets turning, these crossover investors have essentially withdrawn from the market. And so now what you have is essentially 700 unicorns in America with a combined valuation of $2.4 trillion. And so there's a lot of money at stake and not that many exits happening. Well, what are
1: the exits? If you're one of these investors, how can you get your money
4: out? So the most obvious option is to go public, which is an IPO. The problem with that is the IPO market is essentially at a standstill. Last year, there were a few high profile public listings. But if you leave aside Arm, which is a chip designer and has benefited a lot from the AI excitement, most of the other IPOs disappointed. And this year is also not looking that hopeful. So that takes one exit path off the table. The second option, which is quite popular in Silicon Valley, is selling to another company. Typically, this would be a larger company, um, like some of the big tech, like Amazon, Microsoft, or Apple. The problem with that path is regulators have been looking at these deals with a lot more scrutiny. And so that path has also been essentially blocked because big tech is sitting on the sidelines and not participating in so many of these deals. And so last year, to put some numbers to it, there were only 700 VC-backed exits via this approach. Whereas again, in the peak in 2021, that number was closer to 1,300. But what about
1: these investors selling their stake to perhaps other investors, a kind of like secondary market
4: of investment? Yes. So that is an option, but it's not very attractive. The secondary market that you talked about, the valuations of these unicorns has taken a hit. So, what we calculated was almost 80% of unicorns, their valuations in the so-called secondary market is much below what their last fundraising round was. So that's not a really good option for investors or employees. Now, what this means is because of this lack of funding, a lot of unicorns are essentially winding down. To give an example, Convoy, which is a logistics startup, had raised over $800 and was last valued at over $4 billion dollars shut down in October. Weave, another unicorn that looked to disrupt the home-building business, closed its doors in November and is now in the process of liquidating its assets. And so this trend is probably going to continue where a lot of startups will quietly get acquired for parts. So what does all of this mean
1: for the the tech industry as a whole, for the kinds of investors that will get in, the kinds of uh, investments that will be made, the kinds of companies that will make it or won't?
4: So the trend about unicorns facing the reckoning is, is not necessarily bad. There's a newfound sobriety in Silicon Valley. Gone are the days of, quote-unquote, blitzscaling, which used to be a very popular term. And now in its stead, you'll hear founders actually talking about margins, operations, almost like the boring stuff that had been forgotten. On the investor side, I think they'll probably be a lot less patient with cash-burning startups, primarily on the B2C or the consumer startups. Now, if you take a step back and see what that means to the startups themselves, I think one of the things you'll realize is startups are learning to do a lot more with less. They're a lot more circumspect in their hiring decisions. So it's not just about growing, growing, growing in terms of the employees that you have. Salaries are also a lot more constrained. And so effectively, I think there's a newfound appreciation for unit economics as well as a sustainable path towards profitability for a lot of these startups. You need to couple this with the excitement around AI that is obviously happening. And so I think when you combine these two trends, what this means is the new generation of startups that we're going to be seeing are going to be a lot more serious, a lot more focused on margins, as well as taking a longer view of their business in terms of sustainability.
1: Shalesh, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you for having me.
5: <speaks> Ibrahima Juf, <inaudible> Okay. Ibrahima You are the Ibrahima Juf Is-i-I. is a laborer living in Dakar, the capital of Senegal.
2: Kinley Salmon
5: is the Economist's Africa correspondent. He makes bricks on a construction site in Ngor at one of the capital suburbs, and he took a break from shoveling sand and cement to tell me why he can't manage to buy a home. Jamais,
4: jamais, jamais, jamais. Pourquoi?
5: Mm. He says he needs guarantees for a loan and that he will never, never, never get one because he works day to day without a permanent contract. Vous you have a family? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. oui. yeah, so I have a Sept, seven, seven. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Okay, so you a lot of work. You <laughs> joke that with a wife and seven kids, he needs a lot of work just to stay afloat. And Ibrahima's story isn't rare. It's extremely hard for people right across sub-Saharan Africa to qualify for a mortgage. There is, of course, though, great need housing. And many, many people in Africa are desperate to find a way to get into better quality housing. And that creates sort of tremendous opportunities. But it's going to require, you know, a whole new way of thinking to make sure people can afford even the cheapest of homes.
2: What's the state of the housing market across the continent?
5: There are, unfortunately, huge problems in the housing market. I mean, in African cities, about half of the continent's urban dwelling population lives in what the UN classes as slums. That's made more challenging. And the absolute number of people living in slums is actually rising in large part because of relatively high population growth, but also high urbanization rates, people moving to the city. There's then a struggle to kind of build adequate homes as well as finance them. And that's exacerbating this kind of continent-wide housing crisis.
2: How did we get here? Why is there a housing crisis?
5: There's two big problems. I mean, sort of building good, decent homes takes financing, and people aren't able to get that financing and just can't afford it themselves. And then there's also the sort of supply side, actually building houses. And the way that houses are built and constructed in most of sub-Saharan Africa now is sort of time-consuming, Often quite inefficient, and the result is just an inadequate number of good houses. The goal, of course, is to sort of build you know decent, structurally sound you know homes that will last, ones that will have or can have electricity in you know, a running water. But today, probably something like ninety percent of the homes in Africa are self-built, and they're often built sort of incrementally, and that means that many African cities are really full of incomplete homes. Behind all of this is that. Doing housing, I guess, more formally, building just a a decent, good quality home, isn't cheap at all in Africa. The cheapest of homes can cost about $20,000 in most sub-Saharan countries, according to the Center for Affordable Housing Finance, a South Africa-based outfit. That amount is really an impossible sum when the average annual income in sub-Saharan Africa is less than $2,000.
2: Okay, so yeah, 10 times your income is pretty pricey for a house. Why are homes so expensive on the continent?
5: The reason homes are so expensive is sort of a combination of things. One is there is just a lot of red tape, and there are also really, in many places, quite weak property ownership records, which also get in the way. On the red tape side in Kenya, for example, the colonial era laws sort of still require that, you know, a new two-bedroom home should have a car park. That's just terribly inefficient use of space. On the issue of land titling, they're just in many, many African cities, there aren't clear titles for land. Only 4% of the countries in Africa have mapped and registered their private land in their capital cities. That creates a problem for developers who want to be sure that the piece of land they're building on, that they definitely own it before they go ahead and invest. So that slows down supply. And it also puts off banks who might lend to sort of would-be buyers because they think, well, if things go wrong, they've got no certain collateral that they can go and get. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, in many places, quite a heavy reliance on imported materials, sometimes also because colonial era building codes imply or require it.
2: And now, for those who do manage to get mortgages, what do the rates look like?
5: I think it's firstly worth just underlining kind of how few people there are who really do manage to get mortgages. In Uganda, for example, there's a country of about 50 million people. There are just 7,000 outstanding home loans at the moment. So it's a real problem to get one. But the rates are a problem too. They are unaffordable for most people. I was told by the World Bank that a good rule of thumb is that, you know, a loan's rate needs to be in the single digits for it to be kind of realistically affordable at a sort of reasonable scale. But only about a third of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, at least where there's data available, have rates in the single digit at the moment. That's partly because central bank rates are high in Africa. And it's also because there just isn't much long-term financing available. Where people can borrow long-term, actually, that's often gobbled up by governments wanting to borrow for their own spending pushing up rates further is that most Africans work in the informal sector, but that doesn't come with income statements. And so banks are just very, very reluctant to lend when there's sort of uncertainty about the income of the person they're lending to. And then as a result, they, of course, push up rates higher to compensate for that risk.
2: Okay, this does sound rather bleak. Is there any hope that things could turn for the better?
5: I think there is, but clearly it's going to require quite a radical change in the way things are currently done. You know, there's now, I think, a growing view from people I spoke to that sort of Western-style mortgages just aren't the right tool for the vast majority of people in sub-Saharan Africa. So people are trying different things. There's innovative new ways of financing. Some banks are trying to offer you know, shorter loans for families to build an additional room to rent or for a house extension, so sort of financing how houses are actually built you know, incrementally. I spoke with Housing Finance Bank in Uganda, a partially government-backed bank, and they do this with loans worth typically about $4,000. The average length for those loans is about three years, although it can go longer. And they accept things like kind of motorbikes or even appliances like a fridge as collateral instead of formal land title itself. But this helps sort of dodge, at least in part, the tricky issue of, of the lack of land titling, which gets in the way of normal mortgage lending. And Housing Finance Bank told me that the loan repayment rate is good. People aren't defaulting. They say this is sort of an efficient use of capital. So there's sort of real possibility that building incrementally like that can help increase the kind of quality and and quantity of, of good housing.
2: But even if it becomes easier for people in the informal sector to borrow, you still need to measure someone's ability to repay, Right.
5: That's exactly right. There's also some interesting efforts by startups to try and solve this problem. One Indian outfit called Sintelect is using an algorithm to try to test informal workers' credit worthiness. They look at what people do for work, even in the informal sector. Are they a tailor or do they sell food on the street, for example? And they might also look at kind of people's mobile money payments. A lot of these transactions are done on mobile phones. They even use location data to sort of say, okay, is this person selling food near a perhaps a more upmarket business district, which would give us confidence that they're going to have a kind of good income stream over time. They've just partnered with Kenya's largest microfinance organization, in part to help work on potential loans for housing extensions. So there's really some innovative and interesting stuff happening here. But an even more consequential shift may actually be away from small-scale building, and perhaps even away from individual home loans. How so? Given just how much need there is for good quality housing, there's a case, I think, for bigger developers to play a a really serious role, and sometimes they can solve problems that smaller players can't. Companies and governments, as well as some sort of international institutions like parts of the World Bank, are now looking increasingly to move away from sort of mortgages altogether and to shift to -to rent-to-own models or just outright rent they talk about viewing housing like infrastructure, like a big solar panel development. So I think there's real reason to be optimistic that these different models, perhaps all of them in in varying degrees, point to a change in the way people will get into homes in cities in Africa. The challenge, of course, is for this to sort of change and work fast, because there are already hundreds of millions of people in African cities in need of decent housing, and there are going to be many, many more quickly. So really, this change can't come soon enough.
2: Kinley, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thank you.
3: Let me take you back to Twitter in 2020.
1: Holly Berman is a social media editor at The Economist.
3: It was a time when X was just another letter in the alphabet, and Elon Musk was preoccupied with implanting computer chips into pigs. Donald Trump wasn't yet banned from Twitter, but he was being regularly fact-checked by it. And some Republicans were getting tired of liberal big tech companies telling them what they could post. So they started to defect to a rival platform called Parler. Now, Parler looked similar to Twitter, but with less content moderation. And so came hashtag Twexit as people announced a migration from Twitter. Many of President Trump's supporters are flocking to a different social media platform. It's called Parler. Since then, Parler has earned a darker reputation.
1: Parler could soon be at the center of an FBI investigation.
3: Messages exchanged on Parler have been presented in court as evidence to convict rioters who broke into the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. For a time, Parler was taken off of Apple and Google App stores, There was a legal battle with Amazon Web Services, which hosted Parler, and Kanye West briefly tried to buy it in
5: 2022. Kanye West is buying the conservative social media platform Parler.
3: Eventually, the app went down altogether, but now it's promising a big comeback after being acquired by a Texas-based company called PDS Partners.
1: So Holly, before we get into Parler's potential return, what has the company said about its association with the January 6th insurrection?
3: So Parler rejects the association with January 6th. Shortly after it all happened, the previous owners wrote a letter to the House Oversight Committee and in that letter they denounced what they described as big tech scapegoating of Parler. They also said that Parler had shared concerns about violent activity happening on the platform with law enforcement before January 6th happened. I spoke with the firm's returning Chief Marketing Officer, Elise Perotti, when people hear about Parler, there is this tendency to associate it with January 6th. And I, I wonder what your response is to that. Yeah, well, my response to that is that many like other platforms existed when that event happened. Many people organized to be at that event on all different platforms. However, Parler was the only one that was scrutinized. When you actually go- she claims that Parler's move to return in an election year is coincidental.
2: We're a technology company. We're not thinking about politics.
3: And it's true that Parler isn't the only fringe platform to have won favour among those on the right, but it is the best known. It also wasn't the only social media service to be cited in the House's January 6th report. Facebook, Twitter, Telegram are all in there. But the committee does note violent posts on Parler, some of which were advocating for civil war. So I think it's going to be really hard for Parler to shake that reputation off. And others agree. I spoke to an online misinformation expert at Boston University called Joan Donovan.
0: It's hard to imagine that the brand itself, the name parlor, has shed the public understanding of the app as being a place that many who were part of
3: January 6th got organised. She says that these associations with January 6th will probably be very hard to let go.
1: I guess the question, quite apart from the associations with January the 6th or otherwise, is will people come back?
3: Yeah, so it's unclear. I mean, for one, Twitter or X, as it's now called, looks very different under Musk's ownership. You're probably more likely to see a liberal user threatening to leave than someone on the right. And Elon Musk has weakened a lot of X's fact checking tools that were quite robust in 2020 as part of his own free speech crusade. You can go to his profile and see him sharing posts where he calls America's voting system insane and says things like, why you can't trust the media to his 172 million followers. And that's a big audience. By comparison, at Parlous Peak, it had 20 million users, according to some estimates.
1: I guess it's kind of hard to put that number in context, though, the degree to which the return or the demise of any one platform that isn't the big one, how much that matters. I mean, how should we think about this?
3: Yeah, so it's really hard to know, because it's very difficult to quantify social media's ability to influence extreme political acts. There's been a lot of research since January 6th happened that's tried to connect the dots between social platforms, polarization and violence. And a few studies are starting to paint a more nuanced picture of that link. I spoke with Daniel Corral, who's a sociology professor at Yale University, and he co-authored a study on Parler, platforms like it and civil unrest.
1: There isn't a clear understanding among scholars the degree to which social media can contribute to offline collective action, like protests or other sort of politicized behavior.
3: He says that Parler's unique contribution to January 6th is actually very unclear.
1: It was unclear whether media
0: is affecting them or whether they already have certain beliefs.
3: He found it unlikely that someone could be radicalized by posts on Parler alone. But he does think that the platform attracted like-minded people with pre-existing extreme views. So in essence, it created a space where these ideas could be affirmed. And if you take a bigger step back, you could understand how Parler, which was this loosely moderated forum, became a place where storming the Capitol seemed like an almost normal thing to do.
1: But it does seem clear that extremist views are going to be held and are going to be talked about, whether they be on Facebook or X or Twitter. It's sort of hard, as you say, to quantify just how much it matters, whether there is a platform that is widely known to lean one way or the other.
3: Yeah, exactly right. So social platforms are important because you can kind of understand from a public perspective what people are making of certain events or what their opinions are very broadly. But I think it will be critical this year to understand more about how our online habits are changing. So private encrypted channels are growing in popularity and they offer unfiltered conversation, fewer prying eyes, meaning that a lot of the conversations that might have been happening on public profiles could now be going into private channels and will be harder to see. But actually the bigger thing that overtakes this discussion of content moderation is the power of the charismatic figure in the middle that can rally others to their cause. So people wouldn't have shown up to the Capitol on January 6th if they didn't genuinely believe that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. So whether we see these conversations happening on Parler, whether Parler's user base returns or grows is something that we still need to wait and see. But the conversations it hosted haven't really gone away.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Holly.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024, we'll see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.